Good to be with you this morning. In Dr. Luke's account of the gospel, he tells a story of a time when um, Jesus was invited to dinner at the home of a Pharisee. Now, as you may well know, the Pharisees were kind of arrogant people. They believed that they were right with God and they thought they were okay with God because of their ability to um, follow many of the customs of their day and the things that they believed were laws that would please God, and they had this self-righteous attitude. So anyway, Jesus goes to this house uh, of the Pharisee and this, this big dinner party held, and, and the table is laid, and as you might know, the tables in those days are kind of low. And so Jesus is reclining at the table um, with all the others, and they're sitting around there, and there was this, this woman in town who had lived a very sinful, sinful life. And she heard that Jesus was going to be at this place. So she went and she took her valuable jar of perfume and she took it, made her way somehow into the house and, and, and quietly, calmly went up behind Jesus where he was reclining. And she went behind him and, and got down on her, on her knees behind him and started to weep because of her awareness of how sinful she was. And as her tears fell on Jesus' feet, she took her hair and she, she wiped his feet with her hair. And then she took this valuable, precious perfume of hers and she she poured it out on Jesus' feet and, and massaged them. And one of the Pharisees, uh, in fact, the owner of the house, was astonished. And, and, and he said, if this, woman, if this man was a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is. That she is a sinner. Let me read you the rest of the account out of Luke's gospel. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debt of both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I, su I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I read you this story because it just plays out so beautifully, an incredible principle um, that, that was just being played out in the life of this woman that Jesus so appreciated. The principle is this. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. So here's where we're going today. The degree to which we understand and appreciate the holiness of God will affect the degree to which we love and appreciate and worship God appropriately. Let me explain it like this. The more we understand of the holiness of God as, it's, as our, the degree of our understanding of the holiness of God increases, the more our understanding of our own sinfulness will increase. I don't know if you've ever felt really small when you stand next to a building. It's like the bigger the building, the smaller you feel. It's just like that. The, the, the greater we understand the holiness of God, the more aware of, of the depth of our sinfulness we will become. And the more aware of the depth of the sinfulness we become and the holiness of God and how much He hates sin, the more aware we will become of the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And the more we understand the love and the mercy and the grace of God, the more able we will be to worship Him appropriately. The more able we will be able to come before Him like this woman and worship Him in the way He deserves to be worshipped. Holy, just, and righteous Son of God. So that's where we're going today. And um, for those of you who are just joining us for the first time today, we're in a series that we've entitled The Antiques Roadshow, in which we're looking at some of the artifacts out of the Old Testament and just seeing what we can learn about God by looking at these various um, items that we've chosen almost randomly um, out of the Old Testament and to see... Uh, what do they teach us about God? And we, we looked at David's sling and learned something about the need to have faith and courage in God. We, we've looked at this, the stones that Joshua set up as they crossed the Jordan River. We, last week we looked at uh, Noah's Ark. Today I want to present to you an artifact that will help us understand something of the holiness of God. Uh, so I'm warning you up front, there may be some things that you will hear today and see in your scriptures today that will make you feel uncomfortable. You cannot confront yourself with the holiness of God and not feel uncomfortable. When you start to realize the depth of your sin, you ought to feel uncomfortable. But I want to encourage you to hang in there and stay in there and don't tune out when you start feeling uncomfortable. Don't push back too far. Stay engaged. Because the more you understand the depth of your sin and the holiness of God, the more you're going to understand the, the, the amazing grace and mercy and love of God for you. And then hopefully you're going to be able to come to a place where by the end of today, you and your heart, your heart, your soul is going to be enriched to the point where you're just going to want to pour out your love and appropriate worship to a holy God. So... Hang in there. 
as I unveil to you the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the good thing about the Ark of the Covenant is this, is that we're not left to guess what it was like. You know, we didn't really know what David's sling was like. We didn't know how big the 12 stones are. We know a lot about the Noah's Ark, but, but there's a great deal of detail given to us about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, we, we understand its context. Uh, just quickly, as, as you know, God had rescued, heard the cry of his people in Egypt and rescued them out from among the oppression of the Egyptians and marched them out through the Red Sea into the desert. And he had, he had provided manna for them and he provided water for them. He provided victory over people who attacked them. And then he brings them down to the base of Mount Sinai where he's going to introduce himself to them. They had, they had seen his, his miracles. They had seen him perform wonders. They had seen him provide food and water to them, but they didn't really, really know what he was like. And it's almost as if here on Mount Sinai, he was going to introduce himself to, to them and help them understand and know how they need to relate to him as the holy and just and right saving God that he is. And so he comes down on this mountain in a great pillar of fire and smoke and the earth shakes. They are told not to come anywhere near the mountain. And he calls Moses up on the mountain where he gives them the law, the commandments, and and all the instructions, and he begins to reveal to them how they're to relate. And this whole, in this whole time, he sets up something that's truly incredible, something that will help the people get an understanding of what God is like. He's revealing himself to them. They don't really know what he is like. And they need to know. We need to know. And what he sets up is incredible in its genius because it just gives us a tremendous picture and a pattern of what heaven is like, what God is like, and how we are to relate to him. Now, the cool thing with this is that um, he, he gives, he gives this, this uh, description in great detail to Moses. It's like a blueprint of, here's what I want you to do, among all the other things he said, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to build, build, us a, a, build me a tabernacle, a tent, this, this, this incredible um, tent that, that was to be constructed in, in, in great detail. And, and he, he says, I, I'm going to live with you. I'm going to dwell among you. And I need this, um, this tent so that I can go with you and it be portable and, and we'll move together. He would be their God in their presence and they would worship him and go with him and be his people. His instructions for this most elaborate tabernacle, begin from the inside out. He starts at the core, at the nucleus, and he, he, he describes for them the instructions needed to create a box. So here's how the account goes. The Lord said to Moses, uh, sorry, verse 10, Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to the four feet with two rings on one side and two rings in the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. 
insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at each end of the, of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. And make the cherubim one piece with the cover at two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward and overshadowing the cover uh, with them. The cherubim are to face each other looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So here's the instruction that God gives at the very beginning of what, he, what, what he's going to set up. One of the most important things that he, he gives them is the instruction for a box. Now it's, it's crazy because you look at this thing, it's not that big. It's that wide. It's that long. Just over a meter. It's only that high. And it's only that deep. It's not a huge box. But I think that um, you would agree when you think about this, this ark with frame of, of cedar wood and then covered in gold all the way around, poles, outside, inside, solid gold top, golden angels. That would be an item that would be interesting to rock up at the Antiques Roadshow with. <laughs> There's nothing probably on earth that would match that. Even if you just took the weight of the solid gold and it's on its own, but forget about the rest of it. But you know, the value of this ark, the value of this box is not in monetary value. The value of this box, this ark, is in what it teaches us about the very character of God. God uses a simple little box to teach us the most profound lessons about who he is and, and what he is like. You see, this ark represented the very presence of God. It was above this ark that God would reside and Moses and the, the priests would, would meet with him in this place. When the ark moved, they moved. When the ark moved, the glory of God moved with it. It, was, it represented the very presence of God. It represented his presence and his power. Two weeks ago when we were, we were looking at the account of the stones and Joshua and the crossing of the Jordan River, you will recall that it was the ark that led the, led the march. And the minute that those carrying the ark touched the waters, the waters stopped, and it was the ark that was carried upriver and held there. And it was, it was the presence of God that provided safe passage for the people, signified by the ark. And as soon as the ark came up out of the water, the water began to flow again. Soon after this account, um, we read the account of, of Jericho. And if, if you don't know the account of Jericho, do yourself read come, some cool reading this afternoon. Go and read uh, chapter 6 of, of Joshua and, 
And read the story of Jericho. Here God says to the people as they approach this, this impenetrable fortress, this massive fortress, which is just impossible for them to conquer. He says you take up the ark and march around the city once a day and do this for six days. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times. And at the end of that event, they let out a cry and they blast the trumpets and the walls literally crumble. This is the presence and the power of God giving them victory over insurmountable obstacles. Stand between them and the blessing of God. God wanted them to know that he's with them. He's powerful. He's present. He is their champion. But there's something else about the ark that we want to focus on today that we learn about God through the ark, and we learn about this, his holiness. If there's one thing that you're going to get out of a study of the ark as you go through the Old Testament and look at the accounts, one after the other, you're going to come away understanding something that God wants us to know, that he is holy. So I want to tell you three stories about the ark. I want to tell you three stories about the ark so that we can understand something of the holiness of God. And hopefully today, each and every one of us will walk away with a heightened sense of our understanding of what the, the holiness of God. But realizing that as we do that, we're going to have a heightened sense of our own sinfulness. But I, I so hope that as, that as, as we somehow feel the, the, the difficulty of that, the, the heightened sense of our sinfulness, at the same time, we're going to find the love and the mercy and the grace of God equal that in measure. And we're going to want to worship him appropriately. So the first story, the first account, uh, the story that I want to tell you about the ark, takes place in a time when the people of God were in the land of promise already. They had been there a while and they had started to slacken off and they had actually started worshipping idols. They had... Um, began to treat the ark as if it was just another idol. It was put aside. It was put, in, put in, in among the other idols. And so though it existed and though it was part of their little worship scene, it was only part of it. Alongside the ark, they would have, they would have idols from the different people in the land that they had been warned not to go near. And so as uh, the one account goes, they go into battle again against the Philistines. And the Philistines whip them seriously. And they, 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 they come back to the camp and they say, what's the problem? What did we do wrong? How, how is it that we, we failed? And one of them says, we did not take the ark into battle. Okay, so let's go get the ark. So they go and get the ark and they go into battle. And they, as they bring the ark into the camp before the battle, the people cry out, yeah, we're going to win. The Philistines hear the cry in the camp, and they get all stressed out. They say, oh, they must have a God in their camp. We, we're going to lose. And the Philistine leader says, no, no, we're going to fight them, and they do. And even though they carry the ark into battle, this time they get beaten again. But this time the Philistines capture the ark. So now this is, this is incredible. The, the ark of God has been captured by the enemy, and they take it, and they put it in their own temple. Temple of Dagon, and they set the ark up in their own temple as one of their prizes, as, as one of their rewards. 
1 Samuel chapter 5 says this, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Lord, before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Now, not only were the idols of Dagon on their face and smashed before the ark of the Lord, but here's what happened. Everyone in the city and in the vicinity of the city started to break out in tumors. I know it's pretty gross, but that's what happened. They just found this, that, that since the ark had arrived, they started breaking out in these gross tumor things. So they panic a little bit and they think, maybe it's presence of the ark. So they take the ark and they take it to another city. And when it gets to another city, the same thing happens. People in that city and the surrounds start to break out in these tumors. And then they panic and they send it to another city. They do this again and again and they do it for, for about seven months until they say, enough. We don't want this ark anymore. This thing is trouble. Let's send it back to the Israelites. So that's what they do. They get a cart and they get a couple of young uh, bullocks and they, they, they mount the, the ark on, on the cart and they send these animals back up the road to the Israelites. And um, the ark makes its way back to, to Israel and um, into a town called Beth Shemesh. Now the people in Beth Shemesh see the ark coming up the road with these two cattle pulling it up the road and just trundling along and they get all excited. The ark has been returned and they've got their ark back and they set it up on a rock and they have a big celebration. But then we read this. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom will the ark go up to from here? Who indeed can stand in the presence of this holy God? You see, God is holy. He cannot share a place alongside other invented idols and, and other invented gods. He does not belong in the pantheon of small g, O-D-E-S, gods. He, he doesn't belong there. He's not just another god. He's not equal with other people's gods. He is God. He is holy. He cannot be taken for granted and used presumptuously for our own purposes. You realize that when the people took that ark and they marched into battle, they were under the judgment of God already for their wickedness and for treating God with contempt and allowing his ark to fall in among the idols. 
And he had already declared that the sons of the priests would die in that battle. He cannot dwell in the presence of the ungodly and the unclean. He is pure and not to be defiled. He's holy. He cannot be looked upon casually by sinful men. On another occasion, when David was bringing the ark up to Jerusalem, we read this account. Check out 2 Samuel chapter 6. So they set the ark on a new cart and bore it from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, um, which is on the hill. Uzziah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with the songs and harps and and lyres, and tambourines, and sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzziah reached out and took a hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzziah because of his irreverent act. Therefore the Lord struck him down, and he died there before the ark of God. Are you feeling a little uncomfortable at this point? 70 men get this ark and they look inside it. They're inquisitive and they die. Here's a servant of God walking alongside the ark, part of the the party of bringing it back to Jerusalem, part of the festivity. Oxen stumble and the ark shakes and he thinks it's going to fall, so he puts his hand up to grab it. And you think, how unfair is that? It's not about fair. It's about holiness of God. You cannot touch the ark of God. You cannot reach out and touch God and and, and not die. God is holy to be revered, to be feared, to be kept pure and undefiled, untouched by sinful hands. Who can stand in the presence of this holy God? The last story I want to tell you about the ark occurs not long after it had been built and set up in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle. Now, remember, God has just given the instructions for uh, the construction of the ark and, and the tabernacle. The tabernacle was made up of of three layers. It was, a, it was this massive tent, tent arrangement. There were three layers. There was an outer curtain that prevented anyone who was not a believer from coming anywhere near this holy place. Only believers and worshipers could go into this outer curtain area. Then within that was another curtained off area which was called the holy place. Inside of the holy place were um, altars and, and, and tables for the sacrifices. This was a place where the priests alone could go. And they only went in there to prepare sacrifices for the, on behalf of the people and to prepare the high priest to go into the 
innermost curtain, which was, which was created a place called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And the high, only Moses ever went in there, and, and only there ever the high priest. And the high priest only ever went in there once a year. And so this inner curtain was, was, was a place where he would be prepared to go into this most holy place. And the ark was kept in the holy of holies. It was the most holy place. This is where God resided and God dwelt among his people. So here's what happened. Leviticus number 10, chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Let me go there. Verse 1 to 3. I'm in Deuteronomy chapter 10. It doesn't say the same thing, so I won't read it to you. Leviticus chapter 10. Now Aaron's sons, Aaron is the high priest. He is Moses' brother. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their senses put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron was silent. It's an incredible scene. These are Aaron's sons. They are priests. Their, their duty is to, is to be part of that whole care for the tabernacle and the sacrifice and all of this. But one day they get this idea in their mind that they are going to go walk in and have a I don't know what they were thinking. Have a chat with God. Have a look at God. Have a go and see the ark. What were they thinking? So they get their incense and they they approach. They don't even get inside, and fire comes out and burns them up. Who can stand in the presence of this holy God? God is holy, and He will preserve His holiness. He cannot and will not be defiled by sin. He would cease to be God if he did. His character will be maintained. Who can stand in the presence of this holy God? And the answer is, really, no one. There is no one in and of themselves, worthy and able to stand in the presence of God. The more we understand about the holiness of God, the more we begin to sense our unworthiness and our sinfulness. But now we have a dilemma, don't we? Because all along we have understood this, and God has said this, and we believe this, and we know this to be true. God has said, I will dwell among my people. I am their God and they are my people. I want to be with them. I want to bless them. I want to strengthen them. 
I want to enrich them. I want to give them life. I want to give them good life. I want to be among them. And I want them to enjoy me and to benefit from me and to be blessed by me and to worship me appropriately. I am God and they are my people and we're meant to be together. And all along we're just seeing this problem. The holiness of God keeps and the, and the sinfulness of man keep us apart. We're meant to be together, but we're kept apart. There's a problem, a dilemma. How is this dilemma resolved? It's resolved by God. He alone can resolve the dilemma. And it is here that we discover that the holiness of God is beautifully and powerfully matched by the love and the mercy of God. If, if, it, if it was not, this dilemma could not be resolved, but we find the, the mercy and the love and the grace of God rising to the degree of His holiness. Perfectly matches it. Makes it possible for us to somehow approach God. And the only way we could approach God, the only way this dilemma could be resolved, it would be if, if somehow, in some way, we could be cleansed. If somehow, in some way, our sin could be forgiven, paid for, dealt with, so that, so that when God looks at us, He doesn't see our sinfulness and all this because it's been atoned for. It's been paid for, and therefore we can be forgiven and cleansed. And in our cleansed state, we, are, we become holy and able to be reconciled, able to draw near to God, able to enjoy Him, able to trust Him, able to worship Him. That's what needed to happen. And so God, way back in the Old Testament, sets in place. It's a ritual that needed to be performed that would, would model for us this way of reconciliation. If you're in Leviticus, and I hope you were with chapter 10, turn over to chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover of the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. And I'm, I could read it to you. There's a couple of chapters. I'm going to try and explain it to you. He's, he gives them this very strict instruction on how Aaron is to approach God. So here's what he does. He says, right, First of all, Aaron must take for himself a bull and, two, and a ram and, and two goats. And, and uh, he's to cleanse himself, he's to bathe himself, he's to put on clean garments. And then he approaches the holy place. And at the, at the holy place, he takes a censer, which is a, which is a thing on chains, and it's a bowl that's got coals in it. And into that sensor, you can throw incense, and that incense creates a whole lot of smoke. So he gets that thing prepared, and then he has to take the bull, and he sacrifices the bull. 
catches the blood, and then he goes in behind with the censer, with his blood, and he goes into the most holy place, the idea being that the smoke of the censer screens him off from the ark. So there's a screen between him and the ark created by the smoke. And then he goes, I don't know how nervous he must have been at this after his sons have been burned up. And He goes in there and he, he takes the blood of the bull that has been killed on his behalf and he takes the blood and he smears it onto the, onto the golden ark all over the lid. And then he smears it seven times just before it. And he makes his way back out. Now the ark has been covered with blood that is in, on his behalf, in his place. He then goes back outside and he takes the, the, the two goats that are there. And the, the one goat... He, he sacrifices, and this is a goat that is dying on the behalf of all the believers, of all the Israelites. So he sacrifices this goat on their behalf, and so this goat dies in their place. He then takes the blood of this goat and that now goes back in because the ark is covered with that first goat's blood, atoning for his sin. He's safe to go back in, and he applies in the same way the blood on the behalf of the people, and he pours the blood over out, out onto, the, onto the ark and before it, and he makes his way back out. He then takes his, both his hands and he places them on the head of the, the second goat, and he confesses the sins of Israel. He tells God what they have done wrong. He speaks them. He doesn't just say, oh, just for all the sins. He tells them exactly what he's done. And in that way, the images of this, of, of the admission of the guilt of the people are placed on this goat. That's where we get the story. This is the scapegoat. Then this goat is then taken out into the desert by someone who's chosen and taken way, way, way out into the desert. And he is left out there, never to be seen again, never to return. He just disappears into the desert. And then he, he's allowed to come back. And then he basically goes through and he, he, he does a similar ritual for all all, all, all that's there for the altar, for the, the, the table of showbread, for all the things. He, he cleanses them with blood. He cleanses them with blood. And as he moves out, and the whole place is atoned for. All the people, all the sins of the people are atoned for. There's a sense in which this is a beautiful picture of God saying, the wages of sin is death. Sin brings death. You can't approach me because you are sinful. Something has to die in your place. That sin has to be paid for. When I see the blood, I will accept it as full payment, and you will be safe to approach. Now, this was done every year. It was done every year because it was to remind us that this was not a once or final thing. It was symbolic. The blood of a goat can't pay for the sin of a man or the sins of a people. A man would have to die to cover the price of the sins of a man. A bull's blood isn't sufficient, but it was symbolic. And so this would happen every year just to remind the people that there is something better to come. There is something better to come, but this is your act of faith. Do it. This is symbolic of the covering of the blood. 
that is to come. So we turn to Hebrews in our New Testaments. Chapter 9. Let me read you this. Chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Jump across to chapter 9, verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all to the, at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The blood of goats and bulls can't pay for your sin and my sin. Those are just animals symbolic of the one who is to come. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus at, walking toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus took on flesh so that he might become a sacrifice of atonement, that he might be able to die in our place. When we understand the holiness of God, we begin to understand the disgusting nature of our sinfulness. And then when we understand this, we truly begin to understand the love and the mercy and the grace of God. Because here's what happened. When Jesus went up upon that cross, all the righteous anger of God against all the sin of the world was poured out on him because he took our sin upon himself. And so all the, the righteous judgment of God upon, uh, that we deserved was poured out on him. All the shameful things we have done that would grieve the heart of God and disgust him, 
All of that disgust was poured out on Christ at that time. He carried it. He bore our sins on his shoulders on the tree that day. He became the atoning sacrifice. And it was such that, that, that God's anger and, and disgust and, and wrath was poured out on, on Jesus to the point of his satisfaction. And I know I feel uncomfortable with that. God was satisfied and it took the death of his one and only son to get him to that point where he could say, finally, provision has been made, payment has been made that is sufficient for me to now apply this to the sinful bunch of people who I want to live with. Who can stand in the presence of this holy God If you come to him like a Pharisee, believing yourself to be good enough through your own effort, you cannot stand. If you come to him like Nadab and Abihu, arrogantly thinking that you can just casually approach him because of your religious heritage or because of your position of privilege, you're mistaken. You cannot stand. If you come to him like the 70 or like Isaiah with irreverence to any degree, you cannot stand. But if you come to him, like the woman in our first story, recognizing the disgusting fullness of your own sin, if you come to him in that way, with tears and a broken heart, realizing the cost that he is about to pay or has paid to make it possible for you to be reconciled. You can come to him. If you come to him by faith, believing that his blood atoned to God, made atonement for your sin. His blood covered that ark. His blood met the righteous requirements. His blood satisfied God enough to say that all who come to me under the blood, all who come to me in Christ, all who have faith in Jesus Christ and believe this to be true can come to me. and not under some sort of duress, that we can come freely forgiven because our sin has been completely paid for. Completely paid for. We can come cleansed, guilt-free, shame-free, safely, and, and dare we say even boldly, we can come into the presence of God and enjoy him and his blessing and the hope that he offers us forever as children of God. Let's bow our heads and hearts. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity we've had 
to look into the holy place and to consider the Ark of the Covenant and to be reminded of the holiness of God. Father, as we think about your holiness, we feel very uncomfortable because we become aware of our sinfulness. We realize that we are not worthy. And it's a fearful thing and, and, and sometimes difficult to understand. But Father, we need to press on and to, to look to the good news. We need to look to Jesus because in him we find one who saw the dilemma and chose to take upon himself our sin so that we could be reconciled, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be reunited with our Heavenly Father who loves us and who wants us to be near to Him and for Him to be near to us and to be able to worship Him appropriately with joy. Give you thanks. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.